Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Red Brain by Donald Wandre. One by one, the pale stars in the sky overhead had twinkled fainter and gone out. One by one, those flaming lights had dimmed and darkened. One by one, they had vanished forever, and in their places had come patches of ink that blotted out immense areas of a sky once luminous with stars. Years had passed, centuries had fled backward, the accumulating thousands had turned into millions, and they too had faded into the oblivion of eternity. The earth had disappeared, the sun had cooled and hardened, and had dissolved into the dust of its grave. The solar system and innumerable other systems had broken up and vanished, and their fragments had swelled the clouds of dust which were engulfing the entire universe. In the billions of years which had passed, sweeping everything on toward the gathering doom, the huge bodies, once countless, that had dotted the sky and hurtled through unmeasurable immensities of space, had lessened in number and disintegrated, until the black pall of the sky was broken only at rare intervals by dim spots of light, light ever growing paler and darker. No one knew when the dust had begun to gather, but far back in the forgotten dawn of time, the dead worlds had vanished, unremembered and unmourned. Those were the nuclei of the dust. Those were the progenitors of the universal dissolution, which now approached its completion. Those were the stars which had first burned out, died, and wasted away in myriads of atoms. Those were the mushroom growths which had first passed into nothingness and a puff of dust. Slowly, the faint wisps had gathered into clouds, the clouds into seas, and the seas into monstrous oceans of gently heaving dust, dust that drifted from dead and dying worlds, from interstellar collisions of plunging stars, from rushing meteors and streaming comets which flamed from the void and hurtled into the abyss. The dust had spread and spread. The dim luminosity of the heavens had become fainter as great blots of black appeared far in the outer depths of space. In all the millions and billions and trillions of years that had fled into the past, the cosmic dust had been gathering, and the starry horde had been dwindling. There was a time when the universe consisted of hundreds of millions of stars, planets, and suns, but they were ephemeral as life or dreams, and they faded and vanished, one by one. The smaller worlds were obliterated first, then the larger and so in ever-ascending steps to the unchecked giants which roared their fury and blazed their whiteness through the conquering dust and the realms of night. Never did the cosmic dust cease its hellish and relentless war on the universe. It choked the little aerolites, it swallowed the helpless satellites, it swirled around the leaping comets that rocketed from one black end of the universe to the other, flaming their trailing splendor tearing paths of wild adventure through horizonless infinitudes the dust already ruled. It clawed at the planets and sucked their very being. It washed, hateful and brooding, about the monarchs, and plucked at their lands and deserts. 
thicker, thicker. Always thicker grew the cosmic dust, until the giants no longer could watch each other's gyres far across the void. Instead, they thundered through the waste, lonely, despairing, and lost. In solitary grandeur they burned their brilliant beauty. In solitary defeat and death, they disappeared. Of all the stars in all the countless hosts that once had spotted the heavens, there remained only Antares. Antares, immensest of the stars, alone was left. The last body in the universe, inhabited by the last race ever to have consciousness, ever to live. That race, in hopeless compassion, had watched the darkening skies, and had counted with miserly care the stars which resisted. Every one that twinkled out wrenched their hearts. Every one that ceased to struggle and was swallowed by the tides of dust added a new strain to the national anthem, that indescribable melody, that infinitely somber paean of doom which told a solemn harmony in every heart of the dying race. The dwellers had built a great crystal dome around their world in order to keep out the dust and to keep in the atmosphere and under this dome the watchers kept their silent sentinel. The shadows had swept in faster and faster from the farther realms of darkness, engulfing more rapidly the last of the stars. The astronomer's task had become easier, but the saddest on Antares, that of watching death and oblivion spread a pall of blackness over all that was, all that would be. The last star, nearer, second only to Antares, had shone frostily pale, twinkled more darkly, and vanished. There was nothing in all space except an illimitable expanse of dust that stretched on and on in every direction, only this and Antares. No longer did the astronomers watch the heavens to glimpse again that dying star before it succumbed. No longer did they scan the upper reaches. Everywhere swirled the dust, enshrouding space with a choking blackness. Once there had been sown through the abyss a multitude of morbidly beautiful stars, whitely shining, one. Now there was none. Once there had been light in the sky, now there was none. Once there had been a dim phosphorescence in the vault, now it was a heavy hanging pall of ebony, a rayless realm of gloom, a smothering thing of blackness eternal and infinite. We meet again in this hall of the mist, not in the hope that a remedy has been found, but that we find how best it is fitting that we die. We meet, not in the vain hope that we may control the dust, but in the hope that we may triumph even as we are obliterated. We cannot win the struggle, save in meeting our death heroically. The speaker paused. All around him towered a hall of space rampant. Far above spread a vague roof, whose flowing sides melted into the lost and dreamy distances, a roof supported by unseen walls and by the mighty pillars which rolled upward at long intervals from the smoothly marbled floor. A faint haze seemed always to be hanging in the air because of the measureless lengths of that architectural colossus. Dim in the distance, the speaker reclined on a metal dais raised above the sea of beings in front of him. But he was not, in reality, a speaker, nor was he a being such as those which had inhabited the world called Earth. Evolution, because of the unusual conditions on Antares, 
had proceeded along lines utterly different from those followed on the various bodies which had dotted the heavens when the deep was sprinkled with stars in the years now gone. Antares was the hugest sun that had leaped from the primeval chaos. When it cooled, it cooled far more slowly than the others, and when life once began it was assured of an existence not of thousands, not of millions, but of billions of years. That life, when it began, had passed from the simple forms to the age of land juggernauts, and so by steps on and on up the scale. The civilizations of other worlds had reached their apex, and the worlds themselves become cold and lifeless at the time when the mighty civilization of Antares was beginning. The star had then passed through a period of warfare, until such terrific and fearful scourges of destruction were produced, that in the two days of war, seven billion of the eight and one-half billion inhabitants were slaughtered. Those two days of carnage ended war for eons. From then on, the Golden Age began. The minds of the people of Antares became bigger and bigger, their bodies proportionately smaller, until the cycle eventually was completed. Every being in front of the speaker was a monstrous heap of black viscidity, each mass an enormous brain, a sexless thing that lived for thought. Long ago, it had been discovered that life could be created artificially, in tissue formed in the laboratories of the chemists. Sex was thus destroyed, and the inhabitants no longer spent their time in taking care of families. Nearly all the countless hours that were saved were put into scientific advance, with the result that the star leaped forward in an age of progress never paralleled. The beings, rapidly becoming brains, found that by the extermination of the parasites and bacteria on Antares, by changing their own organic structure and by willing to live, they approached immortality. They discovered the secrets of time and space. They knew the extent of the universe, and how space in its farther reaches became self-annihilating. They knew that life was self-created, and controlled its own period of duration. They knew that when a life, tired of existence, killed itself, it was dead forever. It could not live again, for death was the final chemical change of life. These were the shapes that spread in the vast sea before the speaker. They were shapes because they could assume any form they wished. Their all-powerful minds had complete control of that which was themselves. When the brains were desirous of travelling, they relaxed from their usual semi-rigidity, and flowed from place to place like a stream of ink rushing down a hill. When they were tired, they flattened into discs. When expounding their thoughts, they became towering pillars of rigid ooze, and when lost in abstraction, or in a pleasurable contemplation of the unbounded worlds created in their minds, within which they often wandered, they resembled huge, dormant balls. From the speaker himself would come no sound, although he had imparted his thoughts to his sentient assembly. The thoughts of the brains, when their minds permitted, emanated to those about them instantly, like electric waves. Antares was a world of unbroken silence. The great brain's thoughts continued to flow out. Long ago, the approaching doom became known to us all. We could do nothing. It does not matter greatly, of course, for existence is a useless thing which 
benefits no one. But nevertheless, at that meeting in an unremembered year, we asked those who were willing to try to think of some possible way of saving our own star, at least if not the others. There was no reward offered, for there was no reward adequate. All that the brain would receive would be glory as one of the greatest which has ever been produced. The rest of us, too, would receive only the effects of that glory, and the knowledge that we had conquered fate, hitherto and still considered inexorable. We would derive pleasure only from the fact that we, self-creating and all but supreme, had made ourselves supreme by conquering the most powerful menace which has ever attacked life, time, and the universe, the cosmic dust. Our most intelligent brains have been thinking on this one subject for untold millions of years. They have excluded from their thoughts everything except the question, how can the dust be checked? They have produced innumerable plans which have been tested thoroughly. All have failed. We have hurled into the void uncontrollable bolts of lightning, interplanetary sheets of flame, in the hope that we might fuse masses of the dust into new, incandescent worlds. We have anchored huge magnets throughout space, hoping to attract the dust, which is faintly magnetic, and thus to solidify it or clear much of it from the waste. We have caused fearful disturbances by exploding our most powerful compounds in the realms about us, hoping to set the dust so violently in motion that the chaos would become tempestuous with the storms of creation. With our rays of annihilation, we have blasted billion-mile paths through the ceaselessly surging dust. We have destroyed the life on Betelgeuse and rooted their titanic developers of vacua, sprawling, whirling machines to suck the dust from space and heap it up on that star. We have liberated enormous quantities of gas, lit them, and sent the hot and furious fires madly flashing through the affrighted dust. In our desperation, we have even asked for the aid of the Ether Eaters. Yes, we have in finality exercised our willpower to sweep back the rolling billows. In vain, what has been accomplished? The dust has retreated for a moment, has paused, and has willed onward. It has returned silently triumphant, and it has again hung its pall of blackness over a fear-haunted, nightmare-ridden space. Swelling in soundless sorrow through the hall of the mist rose the racing thoughts of the great brain. Our chemists, with a bitter doggedness never before displayed, have devoted their time to the production of superbrains in the hope of making one which could defeat the cosmic dust. They have changed the chemicals used in our genesis. They have experimented with molds and forms. They have tried every resource. With what result? There have come forth raging monstrosities, mad abominations, satanic horrors, and ravenous foul things howling wildly the nameless and indescribable phantoms that thronged their minds. We have killed them in order to save ourselves, and the dust has pushed onward. We have appealed to every living brain to help us. We appealed in the forgotten dream-veiled centuries for aid in any form. From time to time we have been offered plans which for a while have made terrific inroads on the dust, but plans which have always failed. The triumph of the cosmic dust has almost come. There is so little time left us 
that our efforts now must inevitably be futile. But today, in the hope that some brain, either of the old ones or of the gigantic new ones, has discovered a possibility not yet tried, we have called this conference the first in more than twelve thousand years. The tense, alert silence of the hall relaxed and became soft when the thoughts of the great brain had stopped flowing. The electric waves which had filled the vast hall of the mist sank, and for a long time a strange tranquillity brooded there. But the mass was never still. The sea in front of the dais rippled and billowed from time to time, as waves of thought passed through it. Yet no brain offered to speak, and the seething expanse, as the minutes crept by, again became quiet. In a thin column on the dais, rising high into the air, swayed the great brain. Again and again it swept its glance around the hall, peering among the rolling, heaving shapes in the hope of finding somewhere in those thousands one which could offer a suggestion. But the minutes passed, and time lengthened, with no response, and the sadness of the fixed and changeless end crept across the last race, and the brains, wrapped in their meditation, saw the dust pushing at the glass shell of Antares with triumphant mockery. The great brain had expected no reply, since for centuries it had been considered futile to combat the dust, and so, when its expectation, though not its wish, was fulfilled, it relaxed and dropped the signal that the meeting was over. But the motion had scarcely been completed, when from deep within the centre of the sea there came a violent heave. In a moment, a section collected itself and rushed together. Like a water spout, it swished upward and went streaming toward the roof, until it swayed, thin and tenuous as a column of smoke, the top of the brain peering down from the dimness of the upper hall. I have found an infallible plan. The red brain has conquered the cosmic dust. A terrific tenseness leaped upon the brains numbed by the cry that wavered in silence down the hall of the mist into the empty and dreamless tomb of the Father Marble. The great brain, hardly relaxed, rose again, and with a curious whirling motion, the assembled horde suddenly revolved. Immediately, the red brain hung upward from the middle of a sea which had become an amphitheatre in arrangement, all brains looking toward the centre, a suppressed expectancy and hope electrified the air. The red brain was one of the later creations of the chemists, and had come forth during the experiments to produce more perfect brains. Previously, they had all been black, but perhaps because of impurities in the chemicals, this one had evolved in an extremely dark, dull red color. It was regarded with wonder by its companions, and more so when they found that many of its thoughts could not be grasped by them. What it allowed the others to know of what passed within it was to a large extent incomprehensible. No one knew how to judge the red brain, but much had been expected from it. Thus, when the red brain sent forth its announcement, the others formed a huge circle around, their minds passive and open for the explanation. Thus they lay, silent, while awaiting the discovery. And thus they reclined, completely unprepared for what followed. For, as the red brain hung in the air, it began a slow but restless swaying, and as it swayed, 
its thoughts poured out in a rhythmic chant. High above them it towered, a smooth, slender column, whose lofty end was moving ever faster and faster, while nervous shudders rippled up and down its length. And the alien chant became stronger, stronger, until it changed into a wild and dithyrambic paean to the beauty of the past, to the glory of the present, to the splendor of the future. And the lay became a moaning praise, an exultation, a strain of furious joy ran through it, a repetition of, The red brain has conquered the dust. Others have failed, but he has not. Play the national anthem in honor of the red brain, for he has triumphed. Place him at your head, for he has conquered the dust. Exalt him who has proved himself the greatest of all. Worship him who is greater than Antares, greater than the cosmic dust, greater than the universe. Abruptly, it stopped. The puzzled brains looked up. The red brain had ceased its nodding motion for a moment, and had closed its thoughts to them. But along its entire length, it began a gyratory spinning, until it whirled at an incredible speed. Something antagonistic suddenly emanated from it, and before the brains could grasp the situation, before they could protect themselves by closing their minds, the will impulses of the red brain, laden with hatred and death, were throbbing about them and entering their open minds. Like a whirlwind spun the red brain, hurtling forth its hate. Like half-inflated balloons, the other brains had lain around it. Like cooling glass bubbles, they tautened for a second. And like pricked balloons, as their thoughts and thus their lives were annihilated, since thought was life, they flattened instantaneously dissolving into pools of evanescent slime. By tens and by hundreds they sank, destroyed by the sweeping, unchecked thoughts of the red brain which filled the hall. By groups, by sections, by paths around the whole circle fell the doomed brains in that single moment of carelessness, while pools of thick ink collected, flowed together, crept onward, and became rivers of pitch rushing down the marble floor, with a soft, silken swish. The hope of the universe had lain with the red brain, and the red brain was mad. <laughs>